Let's uh, begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Okay. Good morning to y'all. Um, so for, uh, for those of y'all who weren't with us last week, we, we started the section in the catechism on the Lord's Prayer and making this transition from um, thinking about kind of uh, matters of essential belief or doctrine to now thinking about kind of not just prayer, but the, the spiritual life as a whole. Um, and so in this kind of middle uh, third of the catechism, We'll look at, you know, prayer generally, specifically the Lord's Prayer as a kind of pattern of prayer, but then other things like um, a rule of life, um, spiritual disciplines, the spiritual life as a whole, in other words, how prayer can kind of shape our spiritual lives and our lives as a whole. So that's where we are, and we did the first, you know, five or six questions uh, and we're kind of picking up now on question 160, where we're going to get into talking about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father in particular. So uh, this is page 68, and we'll begin on question 160. So what is the prayer our Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray? The traditional version of the Lord's Prayer is this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So just a couple of things to note before we, we jump into kind of analyzing this prayer uh, in its specifics. So the prayer actually comes from two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, which are listed here, kind of. Um, you'll notice if you actually open up to Matthew or Luke that the prayer that Jesus offers his disciples to pray, it ends with um, this line, but deliver us from evil. We get tacked on a little bit later, this doxology. I'll explain a little bit where that comes from. Um, but it comes from two of the Gospels. Um, some have wondered if in the Gospel of John, Jesus' kind of famous prayer in John 17 um, is a kind of riff on the Lord's Prayer and indeed should be read kind of in relationship to the Lord's Prayer. Um, so I'll offer that to you as maybe, maybe something, something to think about as we kind of walk through the Lord's Prayer. Um, maybe this week, you might sit down and read John 17, Jesus' prayer with his disciples, and think about how there's this kind of interrelationship between these two prayers. Um, it's something that the, I think the early church fathers picked up, but even in more recent kind of um, studies of the Lord's Prayer, people have noticed. And it can be a good kind of um, Lenten discipline to pray the Our Father while studying and reading John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer. There. So just I'll hold that before you. Um, yeah, it says the traditional version of the Lord's Prayer is this. Um, 
It's interesting. The Lord's Prayer seems to be the one piece of liturgy that traditionalists, progressives, anyone in between believes you should never ever change, right? There's something about this kind of old English, uh, kind of old-fashioned English version of this prayer um, that people find sacred. Um, and you'll notice that if you, you know, if you ever try to pray sometimes in the prayer books, they'll give you the option to pray a more contemporary version. It's very hard to do, right? There's something about hearing your grandmother pray this version of the prayer uh, that seems so right. And it almost convinces you that probably Jesus prayed this version, this, you know, English kind of, no, he didn't, right? Uh, he, you know, prayed it in Aramaic and then, you know, it's transcribed in Greek and then we have it in English. But there's something nevertheless very poetic and beautiful about this particular rendering. And the poetics of the Lord's Prayer, I think, are important. Um, we'll get to this eventually, but the form of prayer is not incidental to the content of prayer. So we can think about prayer, especially kind of common prayer, liturgical prayer, similar to poetry, actually, um, more so than kind of uh, maybe like just kind of forms of expression, right? Liturgical prayer or common prayer um, works by trying to kind of uh, form, put into beautiful, poetic, succinct form prayers so that they can be remembered, so that they have a beauty to them, an integrity to them, um, and so that they can be prayed in a way that kind of is easy on, on the lips, on the mind, right? There's something about the form of a prayer like this version of the Our Father um, that, especially after repeated use, it becomes very easy to say, and you almost kind of begin to move beyond the words themselves into a kind of contemplation. Um, so I'll, I'm just kind of setting this up. We'll come back to this eventually, but the form of prayer really matters. Um, in the same way that, you know, if you, if you think about prayer as a kind of gift to God, you know, an offering, you can analogize it to the way you might write a song or a poem for a loved one. Um, how disappointed would you be if you spent, you know, how many hours crafting this, this song or this poem and you gave it to your loved one and they kind of started reading and started listening to it and they're, they just like, can you just kind of give me the baseline meaning of this, you know? And like, no, the form is actually the gift, right? I spent a lot of time constructing this, right? The form is actually quite important to the prayer itself. So we'll get a little bit more into that. Um, but let's just kind of talk a little bit about this prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. So continuing on, on 161, why should you learn the Lord's Prayer? I should learn the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught it to his disciples as both a practice and a pattern for prayer to God the Father. So, of course, Jesus gives this prayer, the Our Father, to his disciples in response to them asking this kind of, you know, notorious question uh, in the Gospels uh, that I, I love. It's, Lord, teach us to pray. Actually, it's not really a question. It's just kind of, uh, you know, uh, it's a petition, right? Um, and in response to this kind of perceived need that the disciples have, that we have, that our prayers need to be instructed, we need to be instructed in prayer. I might say catechized in prayer. 
right? It's why we have this section of the catechism on prayer, because we don't want to assume that we know how to pray. Um, of course, you know, God wants to hear kind of our deepest longings, you know, and the kind of authenticity of our, of our cries, of our praises. But there's something to be said about being formed, being catechized, being taught how to pray. I mean, of course, the disciples are not people who had never prayed before. I mean, these are people who, for the most part, are, you know, devout Jews who had gone um, to synagogue every week since they were boys, right? They know how to pray. They've prayed the Psalms. They, they know the prayers uh, of the Torah. It's not as though they, they don't know how to pray. But one thing that was common for, you know, followers of a rabbi to do was to ask this question, uh, teach us to pray. In other words, teach us kind of how you've learned to pray, you kind of wise, experienced teacher. Teach us how you pray, right? And Jesus takes this question really seriously to heart because what he doesn't give them is a set of tips, you know. Um, when you pray, try to sit like this, uh, try to focus on this way, you know, try to pray at these times. He doesn't do that. He doesn't teach them in that way. He teaches them by kind of letting them in on his own prayer that he praised the Father, right? So in, in other words, he's saying, um, if you want to know how to pray, here's how I do it as the Son of God praying to the Father, right? Um, it's a practice of prayer listed here. So it's, it's, there's, you know, an importance to actually praying the Our Father, I would say daily, if not several times daily. Um, it's, a, it's a very kind of easy thing to pick up as a practice, trying to pray the Our Father before meals or upon waking up, going to bed, these sorts of things. But even more than just being a practice of, of prayer, it's listed here as a pattern. Uh, and this is really the importance of the, of the Our Father, is that it lays out a form or a, a kind of a pattern or a, a way of praying. Um, and, and this is important. This is something that was, I think, discerned very early on by some of the earliest Christian writers. So uh, every year the Brazosfels actually do a study uh, of this great, this great book that's been compiled um, of three early Christian treatises, commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. It's uh, Cyprian, Tertullian, and Origen. And um, they are not the only people who in the early church are writing commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, tons of people do this. Uh, it's actually, you know, it's almost like a genre of early Christian writing, these commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. It kind of span something like scriptural commentary, spiritual guidance practice. Um, they're really wonderful texts. Um, and the reason why people begin to write these commentaries um, early on is because they see, and you see this in the commentaries themselves, this idea that um, reflecting on the, the Our Father um, as a kind of template for prayer itself is really important. And the reason is this. It's actually in this last part of the question that Jesus teaches this prayer to his disciples as a pattern of prayer to God the Father, coming from God the Son. So I, th I think I mentioned this last week, but this is really, really essential to get. Um, every act of prayer, whether it's acknowledged or not, is deeply Trinitarian. 
which is to say this, the, the possibility, the condition, possible, condition possibility of prayer is this, and, and we'll get into this in the next couple questions, that we're adopted into Jesus' own sonship, right? Jesus is the true son of the Father, right? We are not by nature children of God, I'm sorry to say. The, you know, this is very nice and sentimental to say we're all children of God. It's actually not the case, right? Uh, human beings are not by nature children, right? They're adopted into being children of God at baptism, right? They're joined to Christ in his sonship, which is to say the relationship that Jesus has as son to the Father, that eternal Trinitarian relationship, we're actually joined to it. And how are we joined to it? By the Spirit, right? Um, we're, in other words, prayer, every act of it is a kind of participation in the Trinity, communion in the Trinity. I feel sorry for the, the Broads fellows because you all hear me talk about this all the time on the retreats and things like this, but I think it's really important, right, to understand that every act of prayer is participation in the Trinity. Um, I had this, uh, this teacher in uh, divinity school who, he was a systematic theologian and he wrote a lot on the Trinity. And he, tell, he would tell the story about a friend of his who uh, was really fascinated that someone could be so, you know, wrapped up in this kind of arcane doctrine that no one really understands and cares about these days, right? And he said something like, man, uh, Eduardo, you're really into the Trinity. And, you know, he, th he said, yeah, I am. You know, it's like, it's a fascinating, you know, topic of study. I find it intellectually stimulating to think about this. But it's interesting how you, f how you phrase that, you know, into the Trinity, because I would say that the whole kind of telos of human life is to get into the Trinity, right? To not just worship the Trinity, pray to God, the triune God, but to actually participate in the triune life. We call this deification, right? Participation in the divine life. It begins at baptism, we're joined to Christ, but then it's kind of matured in prayer, actually, where we learn what it means to be sons and daughters of the Father by being joined to Christ and learning to pray to the Father just as Jesus does. Um, maybe one last thing on this. I think this is just really kind of important to get about prayer. And at least for me, it really changed how I think about prayer, to think about it as always a kind of participation in the triune life. Um, you can tell the whole kind of story of redemption as a story of, um, of God desiring to bring us into the triune life, right? So God is Trinity, three persons in an eternal communion of love before all creation, right? And that kind of triune life, it's dynamic, uh, it's perfect love, it's kind of um, always self-giving and reciprocating and full uh, self-offering, and the way I like to talk about it, communication, right? Uh, the persons of the Trinity, are they speak to each other, right, in love, right? But their speech is their whole selves, right? So we have this eternal kind of conversation of love, right? That is so intense um, that it kind of, it's, it spills out, right? It's, it's excessive, right? It, it creates, right? Uh, God creates 
by his word, in fact, right? That speech kind of overflows and creates a world and us, right? With the intent to bring us into that communication, that communion, right? And of course, you know, uh, humans are resistant to this, not just the first humans, but every human, right? And so what does God do in response to our kind of refusal to join that conversation, right? Um, he speaks again, right? He sends his word, this time incarnate, right? Saves us, joins us to him, right? By the, by the spirit to bring us back into that conversation, that communion, uh, that speech, right? That's the eternal, that's the destiny of creation, but it begins now even in prayer, right? So that's, that's kind of why I think it's important to think about prayer in this big kind of scope of, you know, the, the triune God um, deifying us, right? Joining us um, to his triune life. And maybe lastly, just one more thing, because I kind of, you know, I get excited about this. So um, what this is going to do, and we'll come back to this eventually, what this is going to mean is that spoken prayers, petitions, praises, intercessions, as wonderful as they are, they're only one part of the life of prayer. Um, I like to think of prayer as kind of usually breaking down on three types. Right? So there's, um, there's using words, you know, uh, speaking to God. There's choosing words, kind of meditative prayer, focusing our speech or our reading on just a, a, a small phrase or something like this. But eventually, you know, be, the third kind of prayer in addition to, to using and choosing um, is losing words. It's moving beyond words entirely and simply being in the immediate presence of God. Right? We might call this contemplation. Um, when we think about prayer as this kind of communion with God, participation in the divine life, we can expand kind of how we think about the practices of prayer to include things like forms of meditation, contemplation, um, silence, all kinds of ways of being with God, right? beyond just kind of asking him to do certain things. Okay, a whole kind of lecture on the Trinity that you probably didn't want from this one question, why you should learn the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but I think it'll be, it'll be important to come back to as we kind of begin to tease this out more. But yeah, thank you. Question? <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a that's a, a good way of putting it. And it's I mean, I think I want to link this idea of, of the the our father being we're joined to Christ in his own prayer to the Father to that passage we kind of briefly looked at last week in Romans eight, where Paul seems to talk about prayer as kind of almost always being God praying in us by the Holy Spirit. So, so in a way, you know, the way that we're able to pray the Our Father truly as, as sons and daughters of, 
of the Father is by the Holy Spirit. So maybe if we want to kind of push the Trinitarian kind of logic and in, in kind of the way you're, you're, you're kind of leading, it's, it's something like um, Jesus gives us his prayer to the Father to pray, and the, the kind of power or the kind of the one who is allowing us or praying in us that prayer is the Holy Spirit. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that eternal conversation. We're kind of joined to it and almost kind of wrapped up in it um, and become, you know, not just passive agents, but, you know, part of this triune conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll come to this because I think the hour has a few different senses. One, it's Jesus saying, my father is now your father, right? I'm joining you to my sonship, right? He's now our father. But also, it's a collective hour that we all pray together. It's not just when we pray, my father and Jesus' father. It's collectively our father. So there's like different senses. Um, Just a kind of, uh, maybe just a kind of piece of Trinitarian minutia. So the relationship of fatherhood is something that belongs peculiarly to the son. The spirit does not relate to God, the father, as father, like as a father-son relationship. It's actually, it's a different relation. So you have the son and the father relating to one another in this filial sense. The spirit relates to the father. Sometimes we use the language of spiration. So it's, a, it's actually a unique relationship. Um, that the spirit has proceeds is the way that the, the creed uses. In the West, we often talk about the kind of relation that the spirit is as the bond of love between father and son. So the spirit actually is the love between father and son. There are any number of ways to kind of talk about that relation. Um, and there are all kinds of arguments about it too um, that are, I think, very interesting. Um, but the Spirit has a particular relation to the Father um, that is, I think, interesting to think about. Um, and, and maybe we'll come back to that, too. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, okay, let, let's, let's take up the next couple questions, then, because I think this will kind of give some texture to this idea of, kind of Trinitarian prayer. Um, so 162, why should you practice the Lord's Prayer? I should pray the Lord's Prayer regularly because it teaches me to pray as Jesus commanded and to desire what his Father wills. So I just want to kind of pick up on this this last part, um, that the pattern or practice of praying the Lord's Prayer, it has this formational aspect of leading us to desire what God desires or to will what God wills. So there's this very interesting passage in Thomas Aquinas's uh, famous and, and very large uh, work, the Summa Theologia, where he asked this question. He asked it in a very kind of technical way, um, but I think it's it's almost it's just this kind of like question that we all have probably thought about at one point. Maybe it's like you know late night in a dorm room when you're kind of like you know trying to do your kind of. Uh, you know, trying to be a philosopher or ask these big questions, you know, or some things you think about, you're like, why, if God is good and all-knowing, should we pray at all, right? If God 
desires to give us all that we need and want because he's good, and he knows what we want and what we need, then why in the world do, should we pray to ask for it? Right? And Thomas asked this question. I think it's a, it's a great question. you know. Um, and he, he says something like this. He says, the goal of prayer is not for us by our petitions to change the divine will, as if God had kind of not gotten it right, right? He was, he was going to do something, he's going to give us one thing, but our prayers were really convincing, and he said, no, you're right, that is actually what you really need. I'll give you this instead, or I'll do this instead, right? Um, God's, God's will does not kind of, uh, you know, it, it's not something we can kind of uh, manipulate, right? It's not as if we can kind of twist God's arm into doing something. Um, the point of prayer, rather, is not to change God's will, but ours, is what Thomas says, right? There's something about praying, and even just like genuinely praying petitions, right? Saying, God, please give me this, right? Or God, please heal this person. But doing so in a way that also is kind of either implied or explicitly said, um, but not my will, but thine be done, right? We're deeply praying for things, but we always want God's will done, right? Praying like that can change, actually, what we come to desire. It may be that in praying, you know, we're, we're praying for this job that we think we deserve, that we really want, that will make us happy. And it's good to genuinely pray, God, please give me this job. I think it would just be the perfect thing, you know? Um, but after regularly praying in a way that says, but thy will be done, not mine, right? You may come to see that, like, maybe um, my motivations for wanting this job were actually uh, not pure, and I didn't realize this when I was praying. It was a kind of matter of God by his spirit working on me, changing my desires. And maybe through prayer and regularly praying and petitioning God, I come to see that, and come to see actually what God wills and wants for me is something different, right? There's a kind of, I call this an ascesis, a kind of, um, a kind of training or transformation of our wills that comes about through praying, right? And the goal being, right, that through kind of being with God in prayer, right, spending time seeking God and seeking God's will, we actually come to want what God wants, so that we no longer find ourselves praying things against God's will, but in this kind of harmonious um, pattern of praying what God actually wants to do. Right? And then finally, Thomas, in that question, he says, and the reason why God wants us to pray in this way is that he wants by our prayers to carry out his will. Right? He actually wants our kind of prayers to come into a kind of alignment with his will. Uh, so that he both does what he wills and answers our prayers, right? And in that process, we become agents of God's will on earth. So maybe you find that a persuasive answer to that question or not. I, I think it's a, a kind of good um, way of thinking about why, why pray. If God is going to do what God does and it's always good, well, it's because God wants us to participate in it, right? The whole pattern of prayer is participation in the Trinity, Okay, what about a little bit more on this idea of the Lord's Prayer as a pattern? So this is 163. How is the Lord's Prayer a pattern for prayer? The Lord's Prayer models the primary types of prayer, 
praise of God, intercession for his rule, petition for his provision and protection, and confession of sins, I should pray regularly in all these ways. So what this question does is it just kind of analyzes the the actual prayer of the Our Father itself and discerns among uh, these, these different elements, different kinds of prayer, right? Praise of God first, right? Uh, this would be that opening kind of petition, hallowed be thy name, right? Or Lord, make your name holy, right? In heaven and on earth. Um, petition, right? For provision and protection. These would be things like thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, give us this day our daily bread, right? The asking both for kind of our basic necessities, personal needs and desires and wants, but also um, big things like, God, make your redemption known on the face of this earth. Um, confession of sins, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All of these are included in the Lord's Prayer, um, which make it kind of uh, an encapsulation of the different ways that we can pray. And you can think of even like the prayer, the kind of common liturgy whether it be morning and evening prayer or the Eucharistic liturgy, as involving all of these, right? It's, in a sense, the whole liturgy is also patterned on the Lord's Prayer, right? Praise, petition, and confession, right? And also, we should say, uh, receiving, listening from God. 164, what are the parts of the Lord's Prayer? The traditional form of the Lord's Prayer begins by addressing God the Father, makes seven petitions, adds a doxology, and concludes with amen. Right, so uh, the way that, if you kind of pick up an ancient commentary on the Lord's Prayer, um, and even modern ones, often the way it will be kind of broken up is by um, these seven petitions. And this is a helpful kind of heuristic or kind of way of looking at the Lord's Prayer because uh, it actually allows us to see certain things in the prayer that we might not have seen as petitions. They actually are petitions, such as um, this first petition, if you just kind of flip the page, is hallowed be thy name. Um, We'll talk about how and why this is a petition that we ask of God, Um, but it's not kind of automatically clear, I think, when we just read the Lord's Prayer that this is a petition, but in fact it is. Um, So seven petitions after the introduction of our Father who art in heaven. And then there's a doxology. So the doxology at the end, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. This is not in the the New Testament. Uh, If you, you know, open up the Gospels to read where Jesus teaches this prayer, um, this is not included. This was um, something that was added to the Lord's Prayer in liturgical use and in personal use very early on. I'm not sure how early. I would say probably at least like second century. Do you have any ideas where this, how early this starts coming up? Yeah, sometimes second century. And my understanding is basically this, that it's a kind of practical, pragmatic thing that uh, early Christians really didn't like ending their prayers by saying, deliver us from evil. And the last word on their lips being evil, 
it just didn't feel right. <laughs> um, and so they wanted to kind of like, you know, uh, put a nice little ending on the prayer. Um, so they just added this, this form of kind of praise at, at the end. So uh, maybe there's more to it than that, but my understanding is just that there was this discomfort by, you know, leaving prayer by the last, you know, on a downer, if you will. Um, so that's where the doxology comes in, um, and then, of course, the, the amen. Any, any kind of questions or thoughts on uh, just kind of, you know, just kind of laid out what actually this prayer is, where it comes from, and its different parts, and we'll kind of get into each part and work through it slowly. Um, but any thoughts or, or questions just on the Lord's Prayer? Again, we'll, usually we'll call it the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Uh, we'll use these interchangeably. Um, Okay, I think that's kind of, that's good for now. Um, so let's maybe just kind of focus the rest of our time just on this, this first, what's called the address, our Father who art in heaven, which has, you know, a lot of this kind of Trinitarian theology that I've kind of been talking about is kind of all packed into those first two words, our Father. Um, so 165, um, why do we call God Father. So we call God Father because Jesus teaches his disciples that we are God's children and should call God our Father. Okay, so just to go back to this, you know, um, this idea that calling God Father is a privilege that comes by grace. Um, in the, in the 19th century, there were uh, some kind of ecumenical movements in, in North America and in Europe um, that, that thought uh, one, one kind of unifying uh, principle that all Christians could agree on, and maybe even people of other religions too, was this kind of basic idea of uh, God our father, man our brother, right? That we're kind of like, we all have one father, and we're all kind of united as God's children. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very nice thought, um, you know, and you can see how it'd be a good way to kind of like aspire towards world peace and things like this, but it just is not quite right. Um, it assumes that when God creates us, that we have this kind of natural status of uh, children of a father, right? That's kind of untouched by sin, uh, but in fact, that's not the case. If you look at the Old Testament, um, you actually see the language of God as father, but father to Israel, not to kind of like all people generally, but specifically to Israel, because this is a nation that he's elected or adopted, right, as his children. And then that kind of idea that one could be kind of adopted into this relationship with God as Father, it's picked up in the New Testament when Jesus kind of uses this, right, and says, um, you know, uh, you can be adopted sons and daughters of God by being joined to me, the true son, All right? Um, so it's just to say that calling God Father is a, is a great privilege, um, and it's a work of, of grace. It actually is what baptism is all about, if you kind of pay attention to the liturgy of baptism, uh, you'll see that the kind of the deep logic, the deep grammar 
of the liturgy of baptism is that we're being baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. We're being joined inseparably to him. Uh, the language of the New Testament is union with Christ, right? being united with Christ. And that is a bond, right? a baptismal bond, um, that is the kind of baseline or kind of groundwork uh, or, or kind of foundation of prayer, right? that we get to enjoy that privilege of being God's children. Again, it's always by adoption, right? Only Jesus is the kind of, uh, I don't know what say, like natural son of the Father, um, right? The necessary son, right? Where the triune identity is such that there is no father without the son and there is no son without the father. Um, there is never a time, right, when there is not a father-son relationship eternal, eternally by the Holy Spirit. Us, however, we don't have to be children of God, right? Uh, it's a privilege enabled by grace. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think you were almost answering it when you said, how would you, I can't remember how you put it, like put this in a Christological frame, which is something like this with Adam, right? Adam is a son of God, in this kind of, we might call it a, a kind of, um, what's the term I wanna, I wanna use, right? He is a kind of son of God as an archetype or as a kind of prefiguration of the second Adam, right? Uh, so I think we wanna understand it in that kind of like canonical sense, right? That he is, he is the kind of first son because of the true son. Yeah, it's that kind of, right, right, right. Adam created. I mean, there is a sense in which, right, to be created in the image of God is to be created in a kind of, that, uh, that kind of, maybe, maybe we can say this, we have a kind of capacity to being God's, God's children, right? Uh, it's not something foreign to our nature, but it's not something we have by nature, I think. It may be, be the way I put it. I mean, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of, kind of riffing on this as I'm just uh, talking, but uh, I think, you know, this is, this is kind of how I think about that language of adoption um, being really central to kind of Christian identity or anthropology. It could be, you know, there, there's certainly more to be said. And I think, you know, you've, you've identified like these elements of, the scriptures that seem to kind of almost kind of push back a little bit on that. Paul's talk, yeah, of this idea of offspring. This is a really kind of uh, a passage that I actually don't quite know what to do with because it's hard to know what Paul even means. Offspring is almost something a little bit different than children. Um, 
at least insofar as like it has its background in kind of Stoic philosophy and stuff. So what does Paul mean by taking this element of kind of Greek philosophy and suddenly employing it in a kind of theological discourse? I want to think a little bit more about it. But I, I think the best way to think about it is like in that Christological sense, right? We have this capacity to be children of God because we're created in the triune image, right? And created in some ways after the Son of God, right, in his, in his image. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. It is it's not incidental that the practice of adoption has, you know, historically been kind of really central to Christian um to Christian life. I mean, I think of one thing that early the earliest Christians were known for is um, recovering uh, abandoned children, right, in the Roman Empire and, and taking them in, adopting them, right? Because adoption is like central to Christian salvation. And so that kind of literal practice of adoption and the kind of spiritual reality of our salvation being by adoption, you know, they inform one another and, you know, often the people who most get uh, the way that salvation is this work of grace, of us being brought into a family that's not ours by nature, but is become ours by grace. Uh, the people who, like, most deeply get this are people who have experienced adoption, either as parents or children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 There's a great book um, about about this too. I, if I, it was, I think it was actually written by. Um, if, if I'm getting this right, uh, Trevor Burke, who uh, taught me Greek in college, and he, if I remember right, he was adopted too, and he, he wrote this great book on, on kind of a theology of adoption, and you can just see how it's interwoven with this kind of personal experience of adoption uh, as well. Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, Yeah, let's do. Let's see if we can kind of maybe finish out this this section. Man, there's a lot of there's a lot of theology here, but let's uh, let's keep keep going. Um, so this is 167. Uh, right? Did we do 166? Yes. So 167. Why does Jesus teach us to pray, "Our Father"? Jesus teaches us always to understand ourselves not only as individuals but as members of God's family of believers, and to pray accordingly. 
So this is, um, you know, to get back to this question of what does it mean that Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, uh, this emphasizes this idea that the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer is a common prayer, right? Uh, every time we pray it, it's because, um, or every time we pray it, we're doing so knowing that other people are also praying this with us, probably literally at the same time across the world. And, you know, in the communion of saints, right, continue to pray with us to the Father. Um, that's formative, especially when you're kind of like in a habit, a rhythm of prayer, where you're using... Um, where you're using plural pronouns in prayer, it actually is, a, I think, a deeply formative exercise. So you'll notice that in like the liturgy, if you pray morning or evening prayer, um, you're doing strange things, grammatically speaking. Like you're referring to yourself uh, in the plural. You know, we ask this, oh God. Um, you're doing things like saying uh, both parts of response, right? Uh, and it feels a little bit strange when you're just praying this by yourself, but I think over time you come to realize that you're praying the, the liturgy, you're praying the Lord's Prayer, it's just you entering into this conversation that's already happening, right? You're not initiating it, uh, you're simply joining in the church's continual prayer. The other part of it that's not mentioned here, right, is just what we've been talking about, that the reason it's our Father is because um, it's Jesus' Father, right? Uh, that's the primary. That's the primary form of, of communion, of communication, is the eternal Son to the eternal Father that we get kind of invited into. Uh, 168, how is God like earthly fathers? Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, God loves us in our weakness, provides for our needs, teaches us in our ignorance, and corrects us when we go astray. And let's actually just read 169 as well. How is God unlike earthly fathers? Unlike our natural fathers, our heavenly Father loves us perfectly, is almighty in his care, makes no errors in judgment, and disciplines us only for our good. There is so much that could and should be said about the benefits and also the potential troubles that the language of fatherhood and prayer has. Um, for those of us who have had, you know, uh, wonderful relationships to our parents, it's easy for us to understand that calling God, you know, using these parental terms for God uh, expresses a deep intimacy, care, provision, all these things. Obviously, this is not the case for many people, right, whose experience with their parents is either much more complex than that or, you know, uh, unfortunately, just the opposite, right? It's, it's, it's abusive. And that kind of, you know, learning to pray and um, relate to God as Father, given those histories and biographies of, of abuse and pain, is a deep challenge that um, I'll just say I just have the utmost, utmost amount of respect for people who are, you know, uh, deeply committed to learning to call God Father 
despite every kind of instinct in them which pushes against this. It's an amazing thing. It's a very difficult thing. And it's something that I think has to be kind of worked out slowly and carefully with pastoral guidance and spiritual direction. And um, I guess I just want to say we want to be really sensitive to the just the, the baggage that fatherhood contains, especially in our own day. Um, but just kind of theologically speaking, I think what, what we get here is these two questions, which just as soon as we want to say how God is analogous to earthly fathers, we also want to try to undo it, that saying. This is the classical kind of theological way of speaking where you make an affirmation and then a, neg- a negation, right? You want to engage in this kind of dialectical way of saying everything we can say about God, we can do so because he's, he's created us, he's created the world in this kind of analogous relationship um, where our speech, our concepts about God have some sort of connection to this God who's totally beyond, totally transcends all of our categories, experiences, and concepts. And yet, nevertheless, comes to us as Father, right? And gives us permission to use this language. But also, we want to be, you know, we want to be sure that when we are speaking about God, we don't want to confuse our concepts, our language, as kind of wholly comprehending God, right? Uh, God transcends them. And this kind of way of saying God is like a father in this way and not like a father in this way um, is really important. It's not just important in fatherhood language. It's actually important in all the language we use about God. God is a Lord in ways that we can kind of look around and see lordship working in the world. And God is Lord in any number, countless other ways that we see lordship uh, exercise wrongly in this world, right? There's always that kind of discrepancy along with the analogy. Um, But I think, you know, always remembering that God is not a father in general, right? He is an eternal father to an eternal son. It's that Trinitarian relationship that's the primary thing we want to keep in mind here. Okay, last two questions are about this idea of heaven. So I think we can can kind of finish up with these. Uh, 170, what is heaven? Heaven is the realm of God's presence, power, and glory, which exists invisibly alongside this visible realm and from which God hears the prayers of his children. Um, I think, I don't know if this is just like a, a kind of Western, uh, modern thing, but we just kind of have this natural kind of inherited way of thinking about heaven, which is like more like, I don't know, Plato than the Bible, which imagines heaven as like this other place separate from this one, right? And uh, we get to go there when we die. And, you know, we can't see it, but maybe if we had really good telescopes, we could find it, right? Um, Heaven is not a location, right, in that sense. Uh, And why? Because God doesn't have a location, right? God is not bodily, uh, and so God can't be placed, right? Heaven, rather, is the place of God's dwelling, place being in quotations here, right? Uh, Because, of course, uh, God dwells in all creation, right? So I like this language here that heaven is 
um, what does it say, exists invisibly alongside this visible realm, right? Um, I just listened to this song last night. Uh, what was the line? It was something like, I don't know, heaven is everywhere. It's kind of cheesy. And, you know, it sounds like a book that, you know, you might find in Walmart or something, like heaven is everywhere. But it actually is, like, metaphysically true, right? Um, all of creation participates in, is wrapped up in uh, God's presence, which is heaven. Uh, they sit kind of alongside. Uh, I think Father Lee often uses this language of the veil, right? Um, that in moments in, in worship in the liturgy, uh, the veil between heaven and earth gets kind of ripped apart a little bit, or at least becomes really transparent, you can see through. And you see, you know, that in this space, right, God dwells, right? The heavenly hosts, the communion of saints are here, right? They're not up there, right? That's a, that's a, a, a wrong kind of cosmology, right? Heaven is, is here, right? But it's transcendent, right? Okay, last, last question. How does your Father in heaven help you here on earth? Because God is in all places and knows all things, he hears and answers my prayers, directs my paths, and strengthens me in times of trouble. This is the pastoral comfort of that doctrine that heaven is everywhere, right? Um, when we pray, it's actually hard not to um, have this image of us kind of like lifting our words up to God out there. I heard that's kind of just, it's so natural to us, you know? In the movies when people pray, right, they're doing this. They're praying to the skies. Um, there's probably something right about the metaphors of God being transcendent and so kind of high and, and lifted up. But, you know, God is here, right? Uh, we pray, you know, uh, our prayers aren't going outward to God. God is closer in us than we are to ourselves, right? Um, and so because of this, right, his help here is, is, can be immediate. He, he knows our desires, our needs more than we do. Okay, uh, next week we're going to begin with this first petition. We'll try to do maybe the, the, two, uh, the first two petitions of, of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but let's, let's leave it there for now. Let me just say one thing in closing. It can be a really good Lenten practice to study um, or make a practice of praying the Lord's Prayer. And so I would commend to you, if you have an interest um, in doing some, de you know, kind of Lenten devotional reading. Um, one of these books, uh, I mentioned the, the kind of early Christian father, early church fathers on the Lord's Prayer, and that book is called On the Lord's Prayer or something like this. There's also two very good, more recent books on the Lord's Prayer. One is by Wes Hill, um, that came out a couple of years ago. The other one is by um, my, one of my teachers, Warren Smith. And they're both kind of like contemporary commentaries, guides on praying the Lord's Prayer in that spirit of kind of the ancient um, uh, kind of commentary on, on the Lord's Prayer and their great kind of Lenten uh, reads. So I'll commend those to you. But we'll begin with worship here in just uh, 15 minutes.